0: Good morning. Let's stand and begin our time as we always do with God's word. We'll read from Psalm 98. I'll start and then we'll respond together. Psalm 98 calls us to worship. It says, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now let's say this together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord, Our God and King is worthy of all the noise we can make this morning. So let us make it with joy. His salvation has come, the curse of sin is defeated. So let us sing out to the Savior of the world.
1: Joy to the world. He defeated the curse No more let sins and sorrows grow
2: My name is Kayla Batchelor. I'm the youth and families minister here at the church. It's good to see you guys. You can be seated. Well, I know for some of you, that last song was really, really hard to sing. You don't feel joyful right now. So how do we sing a song like joy to the world when it feels like everything is falling apart? Two reasons. Reason number one, because of the lyrics that we sing right after Joy to the Earth. Brothers and sisters at Desert Springs Church, our savior reigns. And because our savior has answered our biggest problem, sin, we can have joy in our deepest pain. Reason number two, because one day, Jesus will come and make his blessings flow, amen? Amen. Far as the curse is found, far as your doubt is found, far as your grief over death is found, far as whatever is making you struggle for joy this morning is found, Jesus will come and make his blessings flow. That day hasn't come yet, has it? We need each other so I wanna let you know of two ways you can be encouraged and be an encouragement to your DSC family this week. If you are a member of Desert Spring Church, we have a members meeting this Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Um, you can RSVP for that on our website at dscabq.com. Also, guys in the room, we have a Gospel Men's Seminar this Saturday at 8.30 a.m. And like we just talked about, we have needs all across our body and Christ has equipped you to meet those needs I want to let you know this will be an in-person only event and the last day to register is today so I'm about to pray so don't RSVP right now but right after church I want you to pull out your phones and RSVP for this event so you can know how to better serve Desert Springs Church Let's ask for God's grace to meet with us this week, Wednesday night and Saturday morning and to continue to meet with us this morning. Father, you are God, we are not. And we confess that that truth doesn't always comfort us like it should. We regularly doubt your goodness in our pain but we look to the garden of Gethsemane where our Savior trusted your will and how his faith there covers our faithlessness here. Give us eyes to see the glory and hope of Christ's righteousness on our behalf as we fight for joy this morning and this week. And as we see and as we struggle, would you empower us to weep with those who are weeping this morning? We ask you for all these things in your son's name. Amen. Let us stand and find great
0: assurance in the fount of love that is Christ's blood shed for us.
1: Oh, fount of love divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side where sinners stray their filthy rags for his righteousness applied mercy cleansing every stain now rushing o'er us like a flood there the wretched and vilest ones stand adopted through his blood thee we cling from the law has set us free once and for all on calvary's hill love and justice shall the great praise praise the Lord. the price is paid the curse defeated by the man we who we're slaves by birth, sons and daughters. Now we stand. this is true. Oh, well, of joy is mine to drink, for my Lord hath conquered death, victorious. For my soul what wondrous love is this that calls the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul for my soul to bear God and to the Lamb I will sing. from death I-
0: that, say amen. You can be seated.
3: My name is David Pugh. I'm one of the uh, non-staff elders here at DSC. Join me in prayer. Our great God and Father, we are indeed so thankful for your salvation. Thank you that we will indeed sing on. We are thankful for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did bear the dreadful curse for our souls. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That was us. That was each one of us. And it was your love that did this, a redemptive love that you had for the elect from all eternity. Father, you not only give us your redemptive grace, but you give us your common grace to all mankind. And this morning we want to thank you especially for medical advances and those who practice medicine. Indeed, there are those in this church who practice medicine in some form or fashion who have had a very difficult year. I thank you for sustaining them, for sustaining their families. And I ask you to strengthen them with faith and conviction, even for future challenges, especially in light of today's culture. There are growing demands that doctors perform abortions, growing demands that they recognize and affirm homosexuality and transgenderism. Give them more of your grace that they might have the courage to speak the truth that they would not give in to sinful fear. Father, whatever our vocations, you call us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful in whatever you have called us to do. We now ask you to help us by your spirit. We have come to hear your word and we cry out to you for help and illumination that your word would penetrate deeply within our hearts so that we live, leave here glorifying Christ and changed by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Let's stand and continue in prayer now through song as we sing for His help.
1: Let my cry come before you. Help me to understand your word. Understand your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me, Lord, by your word. By your word. My lips will pour. Your salvation, I have delight. Sing that again when I have When I have gone astray Seek your servant Let me not forget your word Let my cry come before you Help me to understand your word Understand your word
0: said amen Amen. you can be seated
4: well a little later in our service we'll get to partake of the Lord's Supper together this morning if you would turn with me in your Bibles though first to Galatians chapter 3 Galatians chapter 3 in your Bibles and as you're turning there let me get us thinking about repetition repetition When thrust upon us, repetition seems monotonous and predictable or even pointless. But we all know that repetition is necessary in life. It's necessary for growth. It is is essential for learning. If you exercise, you know about repetition well. Pick things up. Set them down. Pick things up, set them down. Step, 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 step. If you're in school, you know well how important it is to repetitively review the same information over and over until it's memorized and it's in you and you know it forwards and backwards. Most jobs have repetition to them, not just a job at the factory on the assembly line But white-collar jobs as well, there's repetition. And the older you get, the more you get that repetition is simply central to and a frequent part of life. And the same goes for the familiar experiences of memories and remembering. When you're little, adults are always reminding you of things and telling you to remember this or that. And you don't like that when you're young, partly because you need it, because kids are forgetful. They forget to put away their toys and brush their teeth and to close the closet door. The older you get, well, you in some ways get more forgetful, especially on, a, on the back nine of your life, there's a whole new level of forgetfulness, but remembering Uh, seems to grow in importance. We seem to cherish it all the more the older we get. At 46 years old, with our youngest turning 17 tomorrow, I'm old enough uh, to be sentimental about memories. And so when one of the kids or Sarah reminds us of a story from 10 or 15 years ago, I'm not rolling my eyes. I'm not wondering when it's going to be done. I'm in no hurry. Uh, Chances are I forgot that story they're sharing and I don't want to forget it ever again. When it comes to the Christian life recounting and remembering and repetition, these things are utterly necessary. These make up a regular part of the Christian life. And we just got to get used to that if we're not yet. In fact, we have to lean into it, not away from it. Remember what God did at the Red Sea. Remember. Remember his promises of old. Do not forget the Lord your God. Remind each other. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. So because of all this, because of what we know from life and because of what we know from the Bible about repetition and remembering, we shouldn't be surprised when the Bible is repetitious. And yet sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm surprised by it, especially when I have to teach sections that utilize repetition. And I find myself saying, really? Isn't this kind of the same thing we talked about last week and even the week before? And that was my experience again this week in preparing to preach to you Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14. That's our passage for today. It's a paragraph in Paul's letter to the Galatians that is widely regarded as massively important for this letter. Some have said that it's the most important section of Galatians, or that it's the central summary of what Paul's trying to say in this letter. And I can't argue with any of that, it is important. But it's also true that pretty much everything in this passage has already been said in Galatians already and will be dealt with again before the letter is out. Like a patient parent. The Apostle Paul says the same things over and over in different ways. Why? Because they are so important and because the Galatians were in danger of losing these things or distorting these things. And so Paul repeats himself. So rather than roll our eyes at the repetition, rather than yawn because we've heard this before, let's lean into it and let's listen carefully to what he says. Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, Well, I lied a little. I exaggerated slightly. In what I just read, there are words and themes that have already been dealt with in, in Galatians, such as being justified and having faith and the law and the Spirit. But there are some things that are new and different and fresh in our passage for this week. And one is this fourfold quotation of Old Testament scripture to prove Paul's point. Verse 10, 11, 12, and 13. Even if you don't know where these come from, your Bible probably has quotation marks signaling to you that these are Old Testament quotations. And Paul is stacking up the biblical evidence for his argument. The argument's already been made, but he's stacking up the biblical evidence. That's unique. That's new. Also, something else unique to our passage, at least thus far in Galatians, is the introduction of this theme of curse. Our passage begins and ends with curse. In simplest terms, the passage moves from the curse that we have received to the curse that can be removed on account of Christ and his cross. The passage jumps around a little bit along the way, but the movement from curse received to curse removed is the big idea. In short, Paul puts what he has already been saying now in his starkest terms. Our problem is a curse, and Jesus' cross is a curse-bearing cross. Let me suggest three headings for us to work through. The first is the curse of the law, the curse of the law. Now here, again, as he has been in recent verses, recent weeks as we've been studying Galatians, Paul is continuing to contrast two systems of salvation. Stretching back into chapter 2, he's been doing this. He's been calling these two systems faith and law. That's one way to describe the two systems, faith and law. Or believing versus doing Two M words came to mind for me this week to describe Paul's two systems. It would be merit and mercy. Merit involves earning God's favor by our doing, our working. Mercy, though, means abandoning self-reliance and self-righteousness and receiving God's grace purely as a gift, full stop. He continues to contrast the two systems. Notice the language in our passage. Verse 10 and verse 12 speak of doing. Verse 10 speaks of abiding by God's law. Verse 12 speaks of living by the law. And then verse 10 has this key phrase, I think, relying on. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. To rely on your works is to count on them, to trust in them, to commend them to God. Remember that thought exercise we talked about a couple of weeks ago, if God... Did ever say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? On what basis do you think he should let you in? Is it doing? Is it your abiding by? Is it your living? Is it because you've been relying on the works of the law? The works of the law here, that phrase, refers to Old Testament laws. And not just some of them, all of them. That's the nature of this system. The merit system is an all-in system. It demands perfection. So quoting Deuteronomy 27 in verse 10 here, Paul says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. And then in verse 12, he's quoting Leviticus 18, 5, where it says, the one who does them shall live by them. Again, there are only two systems in approaching God. And if you ask, well, then what about other religions that don't give a hoot about the commands that are found in your Bible? Well, the content of laws, morality, whatever you want to call it, that may differ from one form of religion to another. But the system is the same. The use of commandments, whatever those commandments might be according to any one specific religion, the use of those commandments is the same in every religion Apart from grace in Christ Jesus. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15 are verses that are very telling and very important. There, Paul says Gentiles, non Jews, who do not have the law, they don't follow the Old Testament, they don't take heed to the Mosaic laws, they by nature sometimes do what the law requires. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they act right. Paul goes on to say, they show that a law is written on their hearts and their conscience bears witness. They have alternating thoughts, sometimes accusing them and sometimes excusing them. Their consciences sometimes say green light. Not bad. And their consciences sometimes say, ooh, red light, that's wrong. You see, that explains a lot. Why do we have an instinct to try to be good, to try to measure up? Well, it's because there's a law written on our hearts from birth, no matter if you've ever stepped foot in a Christian Sunday school class or a worship service. And why do we sometimes feel guilty when we fall short of whatever standard we're talking about, whatever law is written on your heart, and whatever code you submit yourself to? Why do you sometimes feel guilty? Because there's a conscience. God has put that within us. And it sometimes accuses us. And why do we sometimes not feel very guilty at all? Or, if we could ask this, why do we work so hard at pretending that we are not guilty? Well, because that's one way, one pathetic, ineffective way that we all, we all by nature, we all deal with our guilt by burying it deep down. Or, as Paul said in Romans 1, verse 18, we suppress the truth. In unrighteousness, unrighteousness. We suppress the truth. We suppress the guilty feelings. We suppress the conscience when it says red light. So you've probably heard the analogy that world religions are like paths up the mountain to God. One mountain, many paths. People use that imagery to teach that there are many paths up the mountain and they'll all get you there, some a little more quickly and a little more easily than others. But you can choose Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism or New Age spirituality or transcendental meditation. Okay, fair enough. The Bible would actually agree with that to an extent but the Bible would also make the audacious claim that none of those paths get you to God. None. They're on the wrong mountain. They all have slightly different paths, yes. But, but, but with all those world religions, climbing is the name of the game. The Bible insists, though, that there is a whole other mountain available to you the Bible insists that there is no hope for you until you get off that old mountain the Bible insists that you must give up on your trek to God in your efforts and you have to admit that he must come down and get you and he must do it all you're dead on the mountain you need hell of out You've been trying to climb Mount Everest, and you can't go on. That's step one in becoming a Christian, is giving up. You have to radio in for rescue. And unlike Mount Everest, where some people have died and some people have made it to the top, no one has successfully climbed up God's mountain. That's Paul's point. There are only two systems. And that's why salvation can't be partially merit and partially mercy. It's all or nothing. Paul insists that it's one or the other. It's a question of systems. It's not a question of what combination or percentage of your grit and God's grace he will recognize. It can't be a mixture of grit and grace, mercy and merit. Because of verse 12, the law is not of faith. And the one who does them has to live by them. And all of them. Has to do them perfectly. That's Paul's point. Yes, doing good comes in response to God's grace, which we receive as a gift. But it's not a means to God's grace. And that has to be the case for everyone because the failure is universal. You see the universal language in verse 10, it's all who in everyone. In the language in verse 11, no one is justified. Failure is universal. And this failure should be evident. Do you see that at the beginning of verse 11? It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. At least it should be evident because we suppress the truth and because we're better than some others and because we're not as bad as we could live, many of us don't think that the failure is really universal, that it's really evident, that it's really that bad, and so we justify ourselves. But that misses the fact that God's commandments Are clear and his desires for us, his designs for us as his creatures, they're pretty far reaching. It's not as though God just says, hey, make sure you don't do the really bad ones. You know, murder. You know, if it's adultery, at least make sure it's love. But don't steal another man's wife. That's really bad. Make sure you don't do the really bad ones. But let me just point out to you that God's commandments are deep and far-reaching and heart-level, not just action-level. You see, Romans 14.23 says, Whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not belief and trust in God through Christ... Everything sin. It's as if ink has been poured on our hands and we go about cleaning up the mess with these ink soaked hands that are getting ink everywhere. Right? Imagine mom said, Don't play in the ink. And you did this. And then you did this. And then you went. Oh, shoot. And so you started to get a rag and the cleaner. And then it's on the counter. And then you're wiping The Ink, ink is everywhere. First Corinthians 10.31 says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you're not a Christian, you probably haven't yet realized that something as simple as and mundane and seemingly innocent is covered in ink. Something as simple and mundane and seemingly innocent as you're eating and drinking. It's not done to the glory of God. It's not done with a thankful heart. Romans 2 says that one clear mark of our fallenness is our lack of thankfulness. You want to see how fallen we are? Just take note of how unthankful, especially to God, people are, not least us. So it's not just doing the right thing. It's also not doing the wrong things. And then it's doing the right things with the right motives to the glory of God and with a thankful heart. Years ago, I read a powerful description of our everyday sinful hearts that stuck with me. It's all too familiar. It was in World Magazine back in 2005. It was just titled, 17 Minutes. It won't take me 17 minutes to read it, but it'll take me a couple of minutes. Listen to this. These are the thoughts of a woman driving home from the stop-and-shop on an ordinary day. She conjures three comebacks she could have hurled at Ellen if she had not been caught off off guard. She spots the baby shower invitation on the dashboard and schemes a way to be out of town that weekend, then thinks better of it because she has a favor to ask of the host. She sizes up a woman standing at the bus stop. And judges her she stews over a comment her brother made behind her back and crafts a letter telling him off she reviews the morning's argument with her husband and plans the evening installment she imagines how life would have been if she had married X somebody rides up on the shoulder and budges to the head of the traffic jam and she hates the driver with a perfect hatred She passes the house of the contractor who defrauded her and fantasizes about blowing it to smithereens. She checks her slightly crooked nose compulsively in the rearview mirror and reassures herself it isn't too bad. An inner voice tells her to turn off the radio and pray, but she decides that's the voice of legalism. She brainstorms talking points for her upcoming woman's Bible study lecture on Ephesians and considers how she can improve it and make it better than Alice's talk last week. She's angry at God because here she is a Christian and broke, while her good for nothing heathen of a brother is rolling in dough. She thinks how much better her life would be if she were beautiful. She wonders how her parents will divvy up the inheritance and how long she has to wait. The Johnsons drive by and she recalls all the meals that she made for them 10 years ago when Lydia had toxemia during pregnancy and bets they don't even remember. Hmm, Did they even send a thank you? An SUV cuts her off and she decides to punish it by tailgating, she tries to pray but doesn't get past our father. There are lots of other people that the woman does not think of while driving home with groceries, people who are not important to her social status. She doesn't think about AIDS ravaged Africa. She doesn't think about the death sentence dangling over millions in Sudan. She doesn't think about missionaries. She doesn't even think about ways that she can encourage her children. She pulls into her driveway. Total drive time, 17 minutes. And if you were to ask the lady as she rustles parcels from the car what she's been thinking about on the drive from town, she would say, oh, nothing in particular. And she would not be lying. Imagine believing that we don't need a Savior. Well, that's a little too close to home, isn't it? Isn't it evident that our sin is really familiar to us? Isn't it obvious that we don't do a really good job, a perfect job of hiding it, of ignoring it, of justifying it? Isn't it obvious, isn't it evident that failure is universal and that it involves you and you're as bad as as almost anyone? And it's all that little stuff, quote-unquote, it's all that innocent stuff. It's, it's all the stuff no one knows, no one hears, no one sees. But you do, and more importantly, God does. If you're not yet a Christian, I ask you, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of it? Aren't you tired of living the lie? Aren't you tired of trying to suppress it, hide it, ignore it? Aren't you tired of climbing up the mountain Haven't you yet come to the end of yourself and to the end of your rope? And Christian, isn't this a familiar, painful, but sweet experience? It's it's like our experience when we came to Christ, when we first recognized our guilt, when we first said, I'm done, and we radioed in for help. And isn't God good in his mercy that every now and then he gives you another peek into your sin over which the justice of God should cry, curse. Cursed. That's the word here. That's the sentence of our guilt. Not, not almost, but not quite. I'm sure you mean well, but you didn't quite cut it. Cursed. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in this book. We'll come back to that language of curse in just a bit. Secondly, there's justification through faith. Here's another path. Here's another mountain. Verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now, verse 11 here is very similar to verse 10 and verse 12 where Paul is trying to establish our guilt, right? That's the first half of verse 11. It's evident no one's justified before God by the law. That's what verse 10 and verse 12 are also doing. But here Paul uses an Old Testament quotation to prove it. That's a positive statement, not a negative one. The righteous shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Here he uses Habakkuk 2.4 to prove our guilt by showing where our hope does lie and can lie. In other words, it can't lie in our doing, in our obedience. No, that's the first half of verse 11. It can't lie there because the second half of verse 11, quoting Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. So here we have just a a glimmer of hope that Paul will unpack in greater detail and with significant theology in verses 13 and 14. But here it's just a glimmer as he's proving the point that we are all guilty. Notice here again, faith is what's once again contrasted with work and law and doing and abiding and keeping. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith. What did Paul mean by this statement as he quoted it from Habakkuk? What did Habakkuk mean by it? Well, Martin Luther, the reformer, helps us. Martin Luther had quite an experience with Habakkuk 2, verse 4. That verse has been called Martin Luther's text. Luther, before his conversion as a young Augustinian monk, He'd been meditating on Habakkuk 2:4, and he'd been meditating on Paul's quotation of it in Romans 1:16 and also in Galatians. He'd been thinking about it, and it wasn't going well. You see, Luther, in these days, he knew his sin well, and he wanted to be righteous, and he was plagued with guilt. And so he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and he confessed his sins more carefully, more thoroughly. He did penance for his sins. He resolved to resist sin in temptation, to to be righteous, and he just kept failing and failing and failing. And he thought Habakkuk 2, verse 4, was giving him more law, more merit more works he thought it was speaking of a certain way to live and of course habakkuk 2 4 is speaking of a certain way to live but luther was getting the emphasis on the wrong syllable and he thought that habakkuk 2 4 was prescribing a certain kind of righteous living whatever faith means in the equation And so for a long while, Habakkuk 2.4 was only mystery and frustration for Luther. In 1510, at the age of 27, he made his pilgrimage to Rome, hoping that that experience would ignite his faith and ignite his obedience and his resolve. And so he climbed the steps of the Sancta Scala, The holy stairs, which were said to have been the steps that Jesus walked as he was led to Pilate. And if so then, then the blood of Jesus would have dripped on these very stairs. And so Luther, like any good Roman Catholic in those days, he trekked up those 28 steps on his hands and knees... Praying at each step. And it was a perfect picture of how salvation doesn't work. It's a perfect example of the wrong mountain. Luther was trying to purge his sinful instincts through pain and suffering and denial and effort and prayer. He was literally climbing his way to God on his hands and knees. But it was just then, on those steps, on his hands and knees, that Habakkuk 2.4 came to mind again and now with new clarity. The righteous shall live by faith, Luther thought. Faith. Faith alone, they are considered righteous by God, not on account of their own righteousness, but as a gift through faith, trust, belief. You see, there was a matter of biblical translation going on in this dilemma for Luther You see, the Latin Vulgate, which any Roman Catholic priest in those days would have had as his primary Bible, the Latin Vulgate used a word for just or righteous in Habakkuk and in Romans 1.16 and in Galatians that was basically implying that God makes someone righteous. The Latin Vulgate translated the word God makes righteous. That's what Luther had been thinking. But in these days, Luther had begun to lean upon the Greek of the New Testament, the original. And he saw for the first time that the word in the Greek is not to make righteous, but, but what, class? What is it? Do you remember? Justification. God declares righteous. Righteous. It's a declaration. He doesn't make us righteous and then declare us righteous based on what he's made us to be. He declares us righteous based on someone else's perfect righteousness, Christ's. So Luther later told his family and his son wrote all this down with careful detail that it was on those steps in Rome that Habakkuk 2.4 came alive to him and he got up and he went home. His son wrote down, he took Habakkuk 2.4 as the chief foundation of all his doctrine. Luther himself in his own words said, When I understood these words, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. I saw the beloved and holy scriptures with other eyes. The words that I had previously detested, I began from that hour to value and love as the sweetest and most consoling words in the Bible. In very truth, this text was to me the true gate of paradise. The righteous shall live by faith. Now some scholars debate whether this live here is the result or or is this like everyday life? Is this eternal life? So... Those God declares righteous have life. Or is it saying that those whom God justifies, their life, their living, their banner is faith. Well, it could go either way. It probably doesn't matter. And Paul probably sees both ideas in Habakkuk's words that faith is now our life is christians this is our assignment you believe that's who you are believers galatians 2:20 the life i now live i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me and it's also the result the result it's eternal life that we get its salvation but faith in what exactly just faith? Like it's just positive energy? No. No, there's faith in something here. Verses 13 and 14 speak of, thirdly now, the Christ-bearing, the curse-bearing Christ, rather. The curse-bearing Christ. And here's how these sections work together. We could ask, how is the problem of the curse Going to be overcome, that was our first point. And and how is the possibility of the second point achieved? Well, in this third point, the curse-bearing Christ. Christ redeemed us, bought us out of slavery. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Deuteronomy 27 and 28, two long chapters that you might want to go read later on your own. At length, they describe blessing and curse. There in the Old Testament law, God through Moses said, Blessed are you if you obey. You'll be blessed in your house and blessed in your bed and blessed in the kitchen and blessed all over the place, blessed with your animals, blessed with your kids, if you obey. But cursed you will be if you do not obey. Cursed everywhere. Curse, curse, curse. You say, well, why then did God give the law? And Paul's going to cover that in the next passage or two in our study of Galatians. We'll consider that question over the next week or two. He knew that you'd ask the question, well, then why did God say that back then? Why? He knew we wouldn't do it. He knew we couldn't do it. Why did he give the law? He'll answer that more fully over the next couple of weeks and the rest of chapter 3. But the point for now, the point for this week is what we've already said. Just just take note, that system doesn't work. That's partly why God gave that system for a time. God gave those words of blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience so that we would know that we're under a curse and that we would seek out something Besides our very best efforts or a new and fresh resolve he gave us the law so that we know that we don't do so well with the law and we need something else and that's what he's provided in Christ it was in Deuteronomy 21 that you find this phrase quoted in verse 13 cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree who's hanged on a tree Well, criminals were. Criminals were hung in their execution long before there was Roman crucifixion, but also in the days of Roman crucifixion. And those hanging like that, God said, these people are cursed. And you can understand why. They were guilty. This was their sentence for wrong that they had done. As they hung there punished by society for their severe crimes it wouldn't be necessarily always wrong to think that they were accursed abandoned by God they were not blessed and that is why at the scene of the crucifixion of Jesus in the new testament almost everyone there is jeering him right mocking him deriding him spitting upon him insulting him it wasn't because they were just mean-spirited people who loved to do this sort of thing i imagine the average jew who took part in that was thinking that they were doing the right thing they were simply agreeing with god they were seeing that this man was accursed He had been proven guilty. He was being executed for crimes. And from one angle, they were right. Jesus was accursed upon that cross. Jesus was, in a sense, deserted upon that cross. But they were wrong because Jesus was not bearing his own curse. It wasn't his guilt. Jesus was bearing the curse of a sinful world. He was not guilty, but perfectly righteous. And he had the right of all of those blessings in Deuteronomy. Repeated, full, expansive blessings for perfect obedience. That's his, and it's his to give. And as for guilt, well, that's his to take. We wouldn't have expected that of him, but he has put it upon himself, and he did it. He bore the sacrifice of guilt for a sin-cursed world. He was abandoned so we'd be accepted. He was rejected so that we might be received. He was beaten so that we might be blessed. He was condemned so that we might be set free. He died so that we might live. And He took on our judgment so that you might be justified. You receive that through faith. You receive that simply by giving up on yourself and trusting in what He did, and that alone. That's the gospel. Gospel means good news. This is really good news. The bad news is way worse than you thought. But the good news is far, far better than you ever could have imagined. Do you believe that? Have you believed on Jesus in this way? If you have, then it's settled, it's a once for all deal. I pray you'd believe that for the first time today, and then you'd join with us as Christians to keep believing that and keep encouraging that with each other, to keep reminding ourselves of the blessing that comes through Jesus Christ. Blessing that's a free gift and a blessing that is far-reaching. You see in verse 14, here, there's purpose in this. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, next week, we'll talk more about the particulars of this verse and what Paul says next, especially things like the blessings of Abraham. Why Abraham? Who's he? Why does it matter? That's for next week. Let's just note this week that the blessing The blessing that we don't deserve, the blessing that we could never earn, the blessing comes through Christ, and it is in stark contrast to the curse that we deserve that he instead bore for us. Our culture is obsessed these days with being blessed. Blessings. It occupies bumper stickers It's a popular hashtag on social media, hashtag blessed. And usually it's a humble brag. You know what humble brag is? Usually it's a humble brag. So, you know, the the high schooler who gets a full ride to Notre Dame to play football, he thanks God for his talents and his hard work, and maybe even mom and dad for taking him to little league practice but the way you summarize all that is hashtag #blessed right a little credit to god and i mean but you know you worked hard and you're proud of it our culture is obsessed with blessings and with being blessed but there is no real or true blessing without first understanding the depths of the curse that the best of us sits under apart from grace. And there is no real true blessing apart from Christ and his cross where the curse was born born for us. And anyone can get in on this. And that's why Paul alludes to Gentiles here, the nations. Anyone can get in on this. Gentiles, those who have a tradition of making up their own stuff about God and gods. And those who determine to do their own will to appease those gods that they have made. Those people can get in on this. People like you and me. That's why we began our service by singing that old Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. Because he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And that's why the gospel must go to the nations and to your neighbor's backyard because they haven't yet heard. But they are among those prime candidates for blessing though they currently right now reside under curse. Anyone can get in on this. There's a great democratization this side of the cross. God is making a whole new family now, as we'll see next week and the week after. It's a new family, not according to ethnicity or physical seed, let alone good works. It's on account of faith. Oh, how we need reminding. Oh, how we need to recount these things, rehearse these things, we need to remember. And the Lord gave us scriptures which remind and remind and remind and take this thing and look at it from this angle, that angle, this angle, that angle. But he's also given us a meal by which we remember him. We call it the Lord's Supper. It's a picture of his death, a picture of his torn body and spilled blood. That's where our hope lies. That's what we believe in. Not the elements, but what they represent. Body, blood, death on our behalf. The curse born that we deserve for us is a gift of grace. Believe it. Today, believe it all the more. Trust in it all the more. Well, let me pray and then we'll sing another song and then I'll come back up and lead us in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Oh Lord, this is your word you speak, you teach, you reveal, and we pray you do that again today. Speak. Speak grace and assurance where that's needed. Speak curse and guilt and trouble and conviction of sin where that's needed. And may we, as we partake of this meal together, be freshly reminded of our glorious Savior, to whom goes all glory because He's done it all. We pray in His name. Amen. Let us stand and respond.
1: Men of sorrow. Amen. Mm-hmm.
4: That's what the Lord's Supper communicates to us in vivid even graphic terms it reminds us of the torn body and the spilled blood the Lord's Supper reminds us where our hope lies not in ourselves but in his finished work and in that alone the Lord's Supper reminds us that it's from grace from top to bottom it's, it's all of grace we didn't do anything Even coming to the Lord's table, we didn't do anything. We just simply show up and we partake. We receive. We take it down deep within our souls. Jesus said this is a picture of what he's done in the new covenant. This means forgiveness of sins. This means he is our God and will do us good with all of his being forever. This meal means this will never change. So this is a token meal by which we await for that fuller meal one day, which we'll sing about in just a bit. But until then, he's given us this gracious and helpful meal by which we remember him. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. So if you're a blood-bought believer in Jesus, if your sins are forgiven, if you've looked to the cross and to that Christ as your curse-bearing salvation, well, we invite you and would even encourage you to partake with us here, even if you're visiting with us today. If you're a Christian, we would invite you to be with us and partake with us at this meal. If you're not yet a Christian, we wouldn't. We can just put it in blunt, plain terms. The Bible says that this is a meal for Christians. It represents something that's true of them eternally before God. And if it's not yet true of you before God, then the next step is something else besides this meal. Perhaps it's seeing me after the service and asking some questions or emailing the church and getting together with the pastor to talk about this some more. Perhaps it means just keep coming, keep listening, maybe getting a copy of your own Bible. There, there might be many things that are next for you if you're not yet a Christian and you're not ready today to become one, but the meal isn't yet for you. So even if you took these elements on your way in today, if you're not yet a Christian, just if you would, leave these uh, at your feet on your way out today and don't, don't feel the least bit bad about that. Believers, let's uh, open this little cup with the bread in it. You've received these on your way in and you have them in front of you and so I'd encourage you as I pray in just a moment for you to look down and to see this bread representing the sacrificial body of your Savior. It is not His body It represents his body, but it stirs faith to see in vivid, explicit, even, well, simple terms, a torn body for you. This is my body, Jesus said, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your broken body on our behalf. We pray that as we partake of this meal, Lord, you would grow us in faith. You you would grow us in confidence in a good news gospel that's outside of ourselves, in work that's already been finished. Oh, we thank you for your amazing love and your amazing sacrifice we've already received it on our soul's behalf and now we receive this bread as a symbol of the faith that we have expressed and will continue to express by your grace until you bring us home in jesus name we pray amen would you partake with me In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes there that the bread that we break, it's a participation in the body of Christ. And the cup of blessing that we bless, it's a participation, a sharing, a fellowship with the blood of Christ. So let me encourage you to open this cup now and look down at this cup and to see the red symbolizing his blood it is not his blood but it symbolizes the blood that was once spilled upon that cross once for all for all and for you oh lord jesus we thank you for your spilled blood on our behalf blood of the new covenant leading to the forgiveness of sins and your faithfulness to do us good forever with all of your heart and soul and strength. You have done us good. We thank you for not only the cross but the resurrection and with great hope we partake of this cup today in anticipation of the day when we will partake of a cup and a meal with you in glory in a marriage feast. We long for that day and we thank you in the meantime that you've given us this pilgrimage meal. We partake of it in faith and in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. And Now let's stand together and let's sing of that glorious day when we will dine with the Savior in glory.
1: Come and die the Savior calls
4: Come
1: and die the Savior calls Eat and live. We will send at Jesus At Jesus' table, we will sit at Jesus' table. But, babe, it's true oh,
4: we have in Jesus not only points us to this consummate, heavenly marriage feast with Jesus, the Lamb of God, It not only brings us back to this small table of broken body, spilled blood in the Lord's Supper, but it also transforms all of life. It now redefines meals, no longer law that says you must do it to God's glory and you better be thankful but now in light of grace sitting under his acceptance and mercy his adoption his care oh our hearts are warmed with sunday lunches around the table with each other and so i leave you with no other word than ecclesiastes 9:7 which speaks to that go eat your bread And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your deeds. And I would only add to Ecclesiastes 9.7, he's accepted your deeds on account of Christ. If you believe that, say amen. 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 You're dismissed. We'd encourage you, if you would, to take fellowship uh, out into the hall, or even better, outside where it's a beautiful day as we uh, get this room ready for our next service. Thanks.